Blog Talk Radio. Depressed 
workforce. You know, that's what no, they've you're, shown. You're right. Oh, absolutely. And they want to pay you less. They don't want to pay and, you and less. They want, and they want to keep the, 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 the interest rates down to zero, all right, or 1%. And keep, and keep and workers destroyed. And know? keep workers under their thumb. Exactly. Um, let's see. Trump just said candidates will need to choose between Wall Street and American workers. We want to be able to bargain collectively with our employers for good wages and benefits without fear of retaliation, he said. Workers are being held down on purpose. That's right. The AFL-CIO also plans to pay close attention to the current debate in Congress over whether to grant the president's fast-track authority on trade deals. I don't want that happening. The union opposes this issue and expects candidates to as well putting Republican candidate Senator Ron Paul, Rand Paul and Marco Rubio of Florida and Ted Cruz under the spotlight for an upcoming vote in the Senate. There is mo- no middle ground, and the time for deliberations is drawing to a close, Trumpka said of the fast-track trade authority. Similarly, Democratic presidential forerunner Henry Hillary Clinton has yet to take a hard stand on the issue. Well, she's not going to oppose it. Her husband was the first one to get, he was get the guy who initiated it. Yeah. trade deals and yeah. all that. So, uh, I mean, what kind of candidate is she going to be for working people? Uh, she'll, she'll destroy the whole country. Pressed on if Clinton is dodging questions on trade, Trump has said the former Secretary of State started off the right way by listening to Americans. I think that is a good start. I think everybody should start that way, he said. Either way, Trump has said, no candidate will be able to dodge any issue. Trumpka wouldn't budge Tuesday on who the AFL-CIO was leaning towards endorsing, saying if the 2016 contender has a raising wages agenda that they're sincere about, we will, we will, we think they'll fight for. We will consider any candidate after raises. So I think that is a good start. I just said that. Trumpka wouldn't budge. Uh, okay. He hinted, however, that the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast-Track Authority are issues could that make or break that could be a make or break for the AFL-CIO. I agree with him. That Trans-Pacific Partnership is so bad for working people; it's unbelievable, and we haven't even seen all of it. Most of it has been hidden from from yeah. from us. And what we've seen is it is horrendous. Every issue that affects raising wages is significant and important, but because of the size of that issue, it's going to be more significant than any other issues Trump has set on trade. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. I think it's pictures. Yes. Okay. So I'm glad he came out with that, but boy, I don't know. It's pretty sick. I don't know how the folks at home feel, but it's very, been very discouraging for most working people who can't really get ahead. They can't keep up because they don't get wage increases that are significant enough. Yeah. Well, this is kind of frightening, too. 150 workers will die today. States with a high union density are among the safest. That's California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, 
Minnesota, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. Thirteen states rank in the top 20 in both union density and the lowest rates of workplace fatalities. Despite significant advancements in workplace health and safety in the 44 years since Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA Act, uh, become law, today and every day, 150 people will be killed on their job or die job-related illness and disease. That, I didn't know that. that, is, that is that surprising or not? That no. and other sobering statistics about the preventable deaths and the injuries workers face each and each day are in the 2015 edition of the AFL-CIO Annual Death on the Job oh. Toll of Neglect released today. The 4,585 uh, workers were killed on the job and some 53,000 died from occupational diseases. Also, nearly 3.8 million work-related injuries and illnesses were reported. The true toll is likely two to three times greater, or 7.6 million to 11.4 million injuries a year. Wow. <coughs> mm-hmm. No wonder, no, no, wonder uh, no workers should be exposed to fatal injuries and illnesses at the work. Uh, yet every day 150 men and women die from a work injury or occupational disease. These deaths uh, remind us that Americans still in 2015 face too many dangers at the workplace. This report includes state-by-state profiles of workers' safety and health and features state and national information on workplace fatalities, injuries, and illnesses, the number and frequency of workplace inspections, inspections, penalties, funding, staffing, and public employee coverage under the OSHA Act. Here are some facts from Death on the Job, the Toll of Neglect. North Dakota remains the most dangerous state for workers, with an average of 14.9 fatalities per 100,000 workers, more than four times the national average of 3.2 deaths per 100,000 workers. The next deadliest states for workers are Wyoming, West Virginia, Alaska, and New Mexico. On the other hand, states with the highest union density are among the safest for workers, with 13 states ranked in the top 20 for both union density and lowest rates of workplace fatality. Death on the Jobs also finds that Latino and immigrant worker deaths, injuries, and occupational illnesses are on the rise. In 2013, 817 Latinos died on the job at a rate 18% greater than the national average, and 66% of Latinos killed on the job were immigrants. In the area of safety enforcement, to ensure employers are not violating workplace safety laws, the report says the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and Mine Safety and Health Administration remain underfunded and understaffed. In addition, penalties for employers who are found to be lawbreakers are weak. The average federal OSHA penalty for serious violations is just $1,972, and the median federal OSHA penalty for workers' deaths is only $5,050. Of the 390,000 worker deaths since 1970, only 88 cases have been criminally prosecuted. Also, 
many important workplace and mine safety rules remain stalled, some due to the administration in action, but mainly because of congressional Republicans and corporate opposition. For example, in 2013, OSHA issued a rule that would reduce silica dust exposures and strengthen worker protections against silica, which causes lung cancer, kidney disease, autoimmune disease, and silicosis, debilitating and irreversible lung disease. It is, the esti it is estimated the rule would save 700 lives a year and prevent 1,600 cases of silicosis annually. But the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Construction Industry Safety Coalition, the American Chemistry Council, and other industry groups are lobbying against finalizing this common sense rule. So you can join the workplace safety by clicking here. Um, and telling Congress that workers need a stronger silica standard. Read the full death of the job report at AFL Seattle, death on the job. Why don't we read that? This, this might be really amazing. Well, we death. just read the highlights of it. Well, 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 you could read what's it, in that it, chart if you want. It's really pretty, pretty staggering. I mean, yeah. it's, it's terrible. Latino workers continue to be increased risk of job fatalities. And that's why they're looking to have more, have more of them. Okay, yeah. the fatality rate among Latino workers increased in 2013 yeah, to 3.9% uh, per 100,000. Yeah, so Latinos... You're, oh, here's something that that they that we didn't read. There is no federal workplace violence standard. Oh. Number of workplace homicides in 2013: 404. Holy cow! Did we? Uh, where, when was this ever reported anywhere? Rank of workplace violence among U.S. job fatality causes. Rank of U.S. Number two. Number of serious workplace violence injuries reported. Female social assistants and healthcare workers face the greatest risk. Really? 26,000. Wow. Percent of all serious injuries due to workplace violence that are experienced by women is 70. 70. Um, percent of, this is 70 percent. Percent of female <coughs> workplace homicides that were at the hands of a relative or domestic partner is 36%. And the percent increase in workplace suicides in the previous year is 13%. Holy cow. Job safety oversight and enforcement. The Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the state OSHA plan have a total of 1,882 inspectors, 847 federal and 1,035 state inspectors inspect the 8 million workplaces oh, under the oceans. Not enough inspectors. No, absolutely not. It means there are enough inspectors. This means there are enough inspectors for federal OSHA to inspect workplaces once every 140 years on average and for state OSHA plans to inspect workplaces every 91 years. The current level of federal and state OSHA inspectors provide one inspector for every 71,695 workplaces. Oh, yeah. Wow. Do you, Do you know, know if your workplace is safe? Yeah. Probably don't. Probably not. 
OSHA penalties have increased under the Obama administration, I but still are too low to deter violations. Yeah. You read this whole thing? No, we read it in the synopsis. Yeah, right. uh, okay. But it says here, criminal penalties under the OSHA law are weak. They are limited to cases which were willful violations result in worker deaths, resulting in misdemeanors. Since 1970, 88 cases have been prosecuted with defendants serving a total of 100 months in jail. During this time, there were more than 390,000 worker deaths. I wonder if that applies to all those terrible mine accidents where oh, the companies sure. were yeah. culpable. Mine accidents. They were, found, they were found to be responsible, uh, and so uh, it wasn't much of a Jeez. consequence for them. They, they just were shamed, but no real. Yeah. Penalties for workplace safety violations are weak. $1,972 average federal OSHA penalty for serious violations. $5,050 for median federal OSHA penalty for worker death. That's for death, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. uh, 390,000 worker deaths since 1970. Only 88 cases have been criminally prosecuted. Sad. After eight years of neglect and inaction, uh, under the Bush administration, progress in issuing new needed protections under the Obama administration has been slow and disappointing. The Office of Management and Budget has blocked and delayed important rules. Since 2009, only four major final OSHA safety and health standards have been issued. Yeah. In 2013, this de facto regulatory freeze began to thaw. The proposed TUFA silica rule that had been blocked by OMB for two and a half years is released. When finalized, this new rule will prevent 700 deaths in 1,600 cases of silica-related diseases each year. In April 2014, the Mine Safety and Health Administration issued an important final standard to reduce coal miners' exposure to respiratory dust to help finally end black lung disease. I thought that was ended. Uh -huh. But many rules are long overdue, including OSHA rules on confined space entry into construction, beryllium, combustible dust, and infectious disease. And the Mine Safety and Health Administration's rule on proximity detection for mobile mining equipment. Well, yeah, you get guys like Mitch McConnell uh, out of Kentucky who refused to you know, move on any of move this. anything this stuff and protect those people. It's, it's the Republican terrible. majority in Congress is trying to stop all new protections and prevent these important measures from becoming law. It's critical that the Obama administration finalize the OSHA silica standard and other key issues as soon as possible so the president can veto any legislation designed to delay or overturn these messages these measures. Very simply, workers need more job safety and health protection. Funding and staffing at both job safety agencies should be increased. Enhanced protection, mandatory, standard, and greater oversight are needed to protect workers from ergonomic hazards, infectious diseases, and chemical exposure and workplace violence. The serious safety and health problems faced by the Latino and immigrant workers must be given increased attention. The escalating faculty, I mean, fatalities you can, you and can injuries. Under, you can understand why they love to have the, the 11 million Latinos come into this country, can't you? Yeah. 
the escalating fatalities and injuries in the oil and gas extraction industry. Intensive and comprehensive intervention. The widespread problem of injury underreporting must be addressed. OSHA's acts whistleblower and anti-retaliation provisions are too weak to provide adequate protection to workers who try to exercise their legal rights and must be strengthened. The Occupational Safety and Health Act is more than 40 years old and is out of date. Congress should pass the Protecting America's Workers Act to extend the law's coverage to workers currently excluded, strengthen civil and criminal penalties for violations, enhance anti-discrimination protections, and strengthen the rights of workers, unions, and victims. Improvement in the Mine Safety and Health Act is needed to give MASHA more authority to enhance enforcement against repeated violators and to shut down dangerous mines. I'm sure that's why they want illegals in here so that's that they exactly can put why. them to work on all these dreadful conditions. The nation must renew the commitment to protect workers from injury, disease, and death and make it a high priority. That's, that's we must demand that employers meet their responsibilities to protect workers and hold them accountable if they put workers in danger. Only then can the promise of safe jobs in all America work workers be fulfilled. That's why, that's why I don't want uh, people not to be citizens, because they're horribly taken advantage of in these kinds of jobs. Oh, God, it's yeah. terrible. And, that's not uh, a job, the total, the total neglect. It's an interesting report. I, you know, I don't know if you want 11 million illegal aliens coming in they're already taking, here. Taking these horrible jobs. Well, they've got they've got a uh, you know they're yeah. they're in these low-paying jobs. They're in these dangerous jobs. A lot of them, and well, poor yeah. and poor citizens are in those jobs. Yeah. And it's just not right. Okay, death on the job, the toll of neglect, a national and state-by-state profile of worker safety and health in the United States. That's probably a big article. You know, big. Uh, well, I'm curious about, I'm kind of curious about Connecticut. We have good uh, well, uh, let's see worker safety. We're a high-union state. That article that you read was taken from this report. Well, hey, let me just read the executive summary. It's, we it's, don't have to read the whole thing. It's just, it's, no, it's then? just what you read. No, it's been didn't. taken from this, what you've read. Yeah, but, but we didn't read these statistics that are really staggering, did we? Yeah, some of them, they've been... They've well, it says, this edition, okay, uh, Total Neglect marks the 24th year of AFL-CIO has produced a report on the state of safety and health protections in America. We didn't read that, Okay. More than 510,000 workers now can say their lives have been saved since the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, which promised workers in this country the right to safe jobs. Okay, since that time, workplace safety and health conditions have improved, but too many workers remain at serious risk of injury, illness, or death. Many preventable workplace disasters do not make the headlines and kill disabled thousands of workers each year. The high toll of job injuries, deaths, and illnesses. In 2013, 4,585 workers were killed on a job. Did you know that? 
you have any idea that there was that many people? Yeah, well, we just read it. No, we didn't read that. Okay, and estimated 50,000 died. We didn't read that, okay, from occupational diseases, resulting in a loss of 150 workers each day from hazardous work conditions. Did you read that last? Yes, those were in the... 50,000 people died? Those no, we did not read that. Nearly 3.8 million work-related injuries and illnesses were reported. We did not read that. Uh, But many injuries are not reported. 3.8 million work-related injuries are not reported. The true toll is likely to be two to three times greater, or 7.6 million to 11.4 million injuries each year. We did not read that. That was in the first article that we read. Those were all the statistics that we had. But we did not read those. Yes, we did. We, taught, they, we read about did North I, Dakota I, I, and... We, from severe dementia. I think so. Because this, I don't think so. This next paragraph was uh, was put in a... In that a, one I recall. And North so was Dakota, the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember 50,000 yes. died from occupational diseases. Okay. No. And uh, North Dakota, we know, has a horrible... Horrible uh, thing. Latino workers continue to increase risk of job fatalities. The fatality, yeah, uh, rate among Latino workers increased uh, hugely. Job safety oversight and uh, enforcement. We read that. That's about the penalty. They had that in the report that we read. Okay. This is the full report, Leo. And from I know, Lila God, I and know from this, that. And from this report, those two articles were taken that you read. Yes, I know. But I just thought it was very, very incredible that that's what's really happening. Don't you? No, it's very sad. It's incredible. I mean, this report is extensive as hell. Uh, and I'm going to ask people to go to it if you're really interested at all. Um, you know, go to it. American workers are really oh, We're getting screwed. Screwed, blue, and tattooed beyond belief. A lot of neglect is all I can say. Yeah. By the government. Well, the the bottom line is that there's not enough people to enforce anything. So the companies take a gamble. That's right. And they win. And the and even if they are caught, the fines are so small. Yeah. What's a thousand dollar fine to to a to a billion dollar company? Oh, what's a what's a a thousand dollar fine to a multi million dollar corporation? It's nothing. Well, here's something. Union women help spread the word about one of the leading killers of women. Okay. In celebration of National Women's Health Week, the Coalition of Labor Union Women is teaming up with the Spread of the Word uh, campaign to increase awareness about the overlooked symptoms of coronary artery disease, one of the leading killers of women worldwide. And the campaign also is designed to inform women of testing options that help spot CID early and improve medical outcomes. CID kills more women than all cancers combined, but it's often harder to diagnose among women than men. 
Well, the symptoms are much different among women than they are among men. Rosie O'Donnell is a perfect example of that. She didn't, uh, at first, didn't realize that she was having a heart attack oh. because what happens to women is very different. In so much as than men, and it's been the symptoms are publicized and are very well known for men and. Uh, it's been generally thought that only men died more often of heart disease, but that's not so. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, so there wasn't ever much attention paid to it. No. Not by doctors either. No, it seems so. AFL-CIO pushes back against Citigroup's influence in Washington. At today's Citigroup shareholders meeting in Washington, New York City, AFL-CIO Office of Investment Director Heather Slavkin, Corzo, uh, uh, our fat wants to get involved with that. Introduced a proposal to require disclosure of Citigroup's government service golden parachutes. As an investor in Citigroup, the AFL-CIO asked the company last November to explain why the company pays golden parachutes to executives who take jobs with the government. The AFL-CIO filed the shareholder proposal after Citigroup failed to respond to the AFL-CIO president, Richard Trumka's letter. Among Citigroup's highly placed alumni in Washington are Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, who received as much as $500,000 worth of stock awards when he left Citigroup for a government job, and U.S. Trade Representative Michael Foreman, who collected more than $4 million when he joined the Obama administration. Also on Citigroup's ballot was a shareholder proposal requesting that the company disclose details of its lobbying efforts. Citigroup, one of the biggest Wall Street spenders on lobbying in Washington, and this proposal would ensure transparency to shareholders on these expenditures. Citigroup's clout in Washington was on full display last display last December when the bank helped push through a law that gutted an important provision of the Dodd-Frank Act. The Citigroup supported bill repealed a requirement for banks to push out risky derivatives trading into separate units that are not insured by taxpayers. The AFL-CIO shareholder proposal on government service golden parachutes received 26.4% of the votes cast. <laughs> The proposal also will go to a vote later this year at J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. It's sick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just totally sick. We just don't, don't have any. Well, who writes the legislation? That's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. So. What does it say about Wikipedia there? Well, it says Wikipedia labor history.
went above and beyond to limit or deny those rights. The winner? Uh, let's look at the winner, the Federal Postal Coalition. For standing up. Well, I didn't get a chance to read the rest of it. What's this? Please go back. The, for standing up against Republican attacks on government employee pay and benefits. So, IFPTE joins the 28 other federal postal coalition organizations telling budget negotiators that enough is enough. Signed by 29 organizations in response to Senate and House budgets that, among other things, targets uh, federal employee pay, pensions, and TSP savings. The Federal Postal Coalition uh, sent a letter this week to budget conferees uh, warning them that the attacks on federal workers is driving our best and brightest away from public service. Mm -hmm. sure. Let's read the letter. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're read this. We, we're, we're very, very strong supporters of the and this is all and, and on the. This is for all federal workers. Dear members of the April budget. April twentieth, two thousand fifteen. This was written. This is written to the budget conference committee. Dear members of the budget conference committee, on behalf of nearly five million Americans, federal and postal workers in annuance, represented by the national member organization of the Federal Postal Coalition, we urge you to craft a physical year twenty sixteen budget resolution conference report that does not disproportionately target those who carry out the work of this nation, our federal and postal employees and retirees. Federal employees have already contributed $159 billion toward deficit reduction since fiscal year 2011, including $1 billion in lost wages from sequestration-related furloughs in 2013 alone. Yet the House of Representatives budget blueprint takes another $318 billion from federal and postal community, forcing this group of middle-class dedicated public servants to once again shoulder a disproportionate share of sacrifice. Enough is enough. While this list is long and our opposition inclusive, the most egregious provisions in the House budget resolution include the eventual elimination of both the defined Benefit Retirement Program and the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program. The coalition also opposes the increase in the contribution of existing federal employees toward their retirement while simultaneously targeting the government's 401k, the Thrift Savings Plan, by reducing the rate of return of the G Fund. With regard to the U.S. Postal Service, the House budget outlined illustrious uh, reforms to save $40 billion over 10 years. They would harm tens of millions of businesses and households that rely on the Postal Service and simply drive business away. There are other reforms that can strengthen the Postal Service without hurting postal customers or employees. Several of the provisions assumed in the House budget were originally predicated on the concept of shared sacrifice and recommendations from the Simpson-Bowles Fiscal Commission. Yet Congress has taken up few of the Simpson-Bowles recommendations, aside from those that directly affecting the men and women serving our nation in the federal and postal workforce. The House budget was no different. 
It asks for disproportionate sacrifices from federal and postal employees and retirees and went far beyond the proposals in the Fiscal Commission report. We ask that you take this opportunity to reverse this trend and stop asking for our nation's civil servants and retirees to pay for a deficit they did not create. The coalition is also critically concerned over reconciliation instructions to the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform as proposed by the House and its counterpart in the Senate. Given the committee's limited jurisdiction over matters involving mandatory spending, any instruction would unnecessarily put at risk the pay, health insurance, and retirement benefits of civil servants and retirees who have already been shouldering the burden of budget savings. No other group of Americans has contributed to the deficit reduction or other congressional priorities in a manner similar to that endured by federal employees. There has been no shared sacrifice. It is time for Congress to find other ways to craft the budget beyond, once again, taking from the middle class, federal employees and retirees who have dedicated their lives to serving the American people into the process, driving our best talent away from public service. Thank you for your time and consideration of our concerns. And there's a whole list of... A whole list of people, yeah. A list of associations. American Federation of Government Employees, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, that's AFSCME, American Foreign Service Association, American Postal Workers Union, FAA Managers Association, Federal Managers Association, Federally Employed Women, International Association of Firefighters, International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, Laborers, International Union of North America, North National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, National Air Traffic Controllers Association, National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys, National Association of Government Employees, National Association of Letter Carriers, National Association of Postal Supervisors, National Association of Postmasters of the U.S., National Council of Social Security Management Association, did National... You National Federation of Federal Employees, National League of Postmasters, National Post Mail Handlers Union, National Rural Letter Carriers Association, National Treasury Employees Union, National Weather Service Employees Organization, Organization of Professional Employees of the USDA, Patent Office Professional Association, Professional Aviation Specialty, Safety Specialists, Professional Managers Association, and Senior Executives Association. Wow. And the coalition chair is Alan Lopatian. Wow. He's the legal counsel. So that's all. That's a lot of folks. Yeah. You know. That was a good letter. It was. I hope they take heed. So far they haven't. Yeah, I There's no shared sacrifice. No. The sacrifice was only among the poor who to sacrifice horribly in the middle and class. Always, that's who they expect to sacrifice, nobody else. You know. And the more that's given by the poor in the middle class, the more that's taken by the top 1%. That's correct. That's, that's absolutely right. It's staggering. Staggering. Um, 
I wanted to, uh, there, there was a whole lot of stuff that I wanted to talk about tonight. Um, we have about 20 minutes left. Yeah, there's other things that are, that are critical. I, I didn't realize there was that much. Did you? Did you? There was that many unions involved with the union. Well, there's tons of unions. I oh, know, no, but I mean, uh, regarding the uh, <laughs> this is this is this is an interesting article. Uh, you know, if you're if you're promoting Hillary Clinton for president. They just got busted by a multi-million dollar <laughs> smoking gun they can't hide from. I wonder yeah. which one that is. Here's another one. Right. Uh, with her questionable ethics under assault and her plunging poll numbers, numbers under near constant downward pressure, Hillary Clinton is having no success freeing herself from a firestorm of controversy over allegations concerning her access and influence while Secretary of State. And now, as though in response to former Clinton operative George Stephanopoulos' recent question on ABC this week, is there a smoking gun? An investigation piece in international business may have just provided the answer. In the affirmative. Yeah. It's been widely reported that Bill Hillary and Chelsea Clinton's foundation was the recipient of tens of millions of dollars in foreign donations from governments and business interests while Hillary ran the U.S. State Department. All that cash flowing into the Clinton Foundation coffers raised serious questions about possible influence peddling in supposed pay-to-play arrangement involving Mrs. Clinton international dealings while serving as an America's top diplomat. Oh, God. Yeah, well, what a pig. I know. Well, Hillary herself has had very little to say about oh, the growing scandal. Clinton defenders have insisted that there's no quid pro quo proof of misdeeds or ethical lapses on the, the part of the Democrats. Ethical leading, lapses? Is that what they call it? Yeah, leading candidate for president, 216. Now, as the IBT report details, the connection between Hillary's State Department and Bill Clinton's bank account is becoming more and more direct. Former uh, President Bill Clinton accepted more than $2.5 million of speaking fees from 13 major corporations and trade associations that lobbied the U.S. State Department while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. An International Business Times investigation is found. The fees were paid directly to the former president and not directed to his philanthropic foundation. <laughs> the IBT investigation has also connected important timeline dots showing that several big companies that paid Bill big bucks and speaking fees received their own financial benefits from the Department of State while Hillary was in charge. Uh, the disclosure that President Clinton received personal payments for speeches from the same corporate interests that were actively seeking to secure favorable policies 
from a federal department overseas by his wife underscores the vexing issues now confronting her presidential aspirations. Scouring through State Department financial disclosures and House of Representative lobbying records, then cross-checking with Bill Clinton's reported speeches and payments made to the former president, International Business Times compiled the following chart showing Bill's speaking fees paid by companies in bold below lobbying the State Department for favorable actions. Oh, here we go. Dell, you know, Dell, computer Dell, paid $300,000 on December 12, 2012 for to Clinton to speak. National Retail Federation, $200,000 uh, paid in 2012. Oracle, we all know Oracle, mm-hmm. paid $200,000 for him to speak uh, in October 12, 2012. Salesforce, I don't know what Salesforce is, they paid 2000 200000 Starwood Hotels and Resorts, <laughs> Starwood Hotel and Resorts, paid $200,000. Goldman Sachs, we know their interests, uh, paid $200,000 for Clinton to speak. PH Arma, Pharma, $200,000. The BHP Billiton. Never heard of it. Anyway, they paid $175,000. The following companies paid $175,000. BHP Billiton, Biotech Industry Organization, Microsoft, VeriSign, Project Management Institute. Affleck. Oh, they paid only one hundred and fifty. Affleck. They're the insurance group with the... Adding insult to injury, a new poll of Hillary Clinton's favorability in key swing states is offering no solace to the embattled presidential candidate. This is even a state where longtime Clinton pal defender and big-time fundraiser Terry McAuliffe is president, is the governor, excuse me. The Washington Free Beacon reports on the new survey by Christopher Newport University. You know, he gave a fundraiser for her and she didn't show? You're kidding. (laughs) numbers are underwater among Virginia voters. Just 44% have a favorable opinion of her compared to 52% who view her unfavorably. Clinton's lead over the Republican field has slipped significantly since February, and she no longer polls over 50% against any of her potential challenges. The new book, Clinton Cash, that purports to reveal numerous details about the Clinton Foundation's financial dealings and Hillary Clinton's supposed influence peddling it's set for release on May 5th. Oh, she's done. She's cooked. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that, you know, what what is this? What, what, what was this? Uh, I mean, she's the only contender now. Yep. And she's already less than 50%. So I thought that was kind of funny. Well, look, yeah. at, look at the Republicans. Oh, my God. They could release it. She looks uh, good compared to them, I have to say. That's always what happens. Yeah. Well, Pat Buchanan, Baltimore needs decisive force. I'm curious about what he said there. I always kind of like Pat, Pat Buchanan. I don't always agree with him. I don't though. always agree with him, but he, he's got some interesting stuff to say. Mm. Main, now, we all know Baltimore is insane right now, and that's something crazy. 
The mainstream media are filled with quotes about officials and other offering excuses for lawlessness and violence in the city of Baltimore. But conservative activists, television pundit, and former presidential candidate Pat Buchanan has a simple response, no excuses. In an excuse, an exclusive interview with WND, the author of numerous bestsellers, including The Death of the West and The Suicide of the Superpower, took aim at journalists uh, trying to explain away the savagery. The arson, looting, vandalism, is a quote, the arson, looting, vandalism, and violence that have ravaged Baltimore should have been met days ago with superior and decisive force. There is no justification, no rationale, no excuse for what has been going on in the streets of Baltimore. None, he says. I don't agree with him. What do you think? Why are race relations so dicey? In contrast to Buchanan's view, Salon published an article headlined, Baltimore's Violent Protest of the Right. Smashing police cars is a legitimate political strategy. Oh my God! The website also promote, uh, promoted the article with a tweet endorsing the destruction of private property, featuring a burning police car. Burning, you know, destroying it's their not, own neighborhood—that's that, that's, that's a plus. Yeah, the article, uh, burning police cars and destroying private property is a legitimate political strategy. That was a tweet from Salon.com. The article is a reprint. Okay, uh, I should read this. And uh, thus far, 15 police officers have been injured in the protest and one remaining unresponsive and in critical condition. Yet despite the human cost of such rationalization, Salone is not alone. CNN's Sally Cohn uh, says that looting is a shame, but police violence against the black community is worse. So we all go down there, throw stones, hurt yeah, each yeah. other. Yeah, kill everybody. Kill the, kill uh, the police. Destroy property. Yeah. Loot a CVS pharmacy. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. And destroy police cars and buildings in your own neighborhood. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Now, here's this crazy bimbo from uh, Sally Cohn from CNN. It says, looting is a real shame, but far more shameful is pattern of police violence against black community, prospective people. Hasn't she ever heard of two wrongs don't make a right? I mean, what kind of good is that? I don't know. You got, you got these idiots. What's wrong with that. people? Yeah. Well, you know, Obama, oddly enough, during his during his speech in the, in, at the White House, mm -hmm. he bashed CNN and MSNBC, I mean, he, which, are the, which are odd because those are the ones that are supporting but him. But they're encouraging the but violence. They, they, they seem to be, and he's just kind of like, these guys are crazy. Tanishi... Coates of the Atlantic wrote an article entitled Nonviolence as Compliance, arguing police are aggressors and call for order as orders are and calls for order are a trick. As he puts it, when nonviolence is preached as an attempt to evade the repercussions of political brutality, it betrays itself. When violent nonviolence begins halfway through the war and the aggressors call time out, it exposes itself as a ruse. The website VOX, which com which claims it explains the news and recently published an extensive interview with President Barack Obama, calls Coates' description of the war in Baltimore the perfect response to anyone calling for nonviolence. Lest anyone miss the implication, the picture accompanying the tweet was a young voter in the hoodie. Young rioter. Yeah, throwing uh, rocks. 
Elected officials are also cautious about forthrightly condemning the violence. Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake has been accused of enabling further disorder because of her statement the city would provide space for protesters to, who wanted to destroy stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is crazy. And Obama seemingly faulted the Baltimore police for the riots by saying there uh, were troubling institutions because of uh, there were troubling questions about police officers interacting with African Americans. Buchanan says that it is not the first time the United States has experienced the collapse of its institutions because of the irresponsibility of national leaders. What we are witnessing today is the same moral cowardice and moral paralysis we saw in too many cities, in too many campuses in the 1960s. Well, that's interesting. When urban rioters and student activists ran wild, while America rose up and threw out a hand-wringing establishment that had tempor- temporized in the face of it, he said. Buchanan was one of the leading advisors to Richard Nixon when, as a candidate, Nixon embraced law and order as a key theme of its 1986 campaign. In Buchanan's The Greatest Comeback, How Richard Nixon Rose from the Defeat to Create the New Majority, Buchanan quotes Nixon's piece, Warding Against Mob Rule, which asserted there had been a deterioration of respect for the rule of law all across America. That can be traced directly to the spread of the corrosive doctrine that every citizen possesses an inherent right to decide for himself which laws to disobey and when to disobey them. As a candidate in his own right, Buchanan also made a memorable statement on urban disorder by referring to the 1992 Los Angeles riots during his keynote address to the Republican National Convention. Recalling how the arrival of National Guard troops forced riders away from a senior citizen's home, Buchanan told, when the troopers arrived, M-16s at the ready, the mob threatened and cursed, but the mob retreated. It had met the one thing that could stop it, force, rooted in justice and backed by moral courage. Meanwhile, in Baltimore, a housing complex under construction that was to be used for the benefit of senior citizens was destroyed during the riots. The American press has reported the cause of the blaze was linked to the unrest. In response to such violence, Buchanan's simple advice to Obama and presidential candidates of both parties. The root cause of of riots is riotous, and the answer is even the same if we to remain a free society, the swift and unapologetic restoration of law and order. What is needed today is not solicitude or empathy for the lawbreakers and writers, but unequivocal condemnation of them by the president and those in both parties who aspire to succeed him. Oh. And I think the underlying causes have to be addressed. Uh, yeah, I mean, poverty, uh, oppression, uh, you know, Employment. brutality. People have time to riot because they're not employed. And not only that, they're they pre- have nothing to lose. But not only that, they're, they're really usually picked off at the police brutality. And they have nothing to lose. You can riot when you have no... What difference does it make? They don't have jobs. Here's something that I have to agree with. Trump, African-American president, but Pat Buchanan says 300 nukes in Israel in Iran is a threat. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can listen to his audio. Yeah, I'll go to that. 
I'm sitting down with Patrick Buchanan, Senior Advisor to Presidents Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Ronald Reagan. He ran for the presidency three times. He wrote many books, and some of his books have really menacing titles. His latest book is called Suicide of a Superpower, Will America Survive to 2025? Very pessimistic, sir. Well, first of all, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. With regards to foreign policy, you're saying one of the ways to prevent that suicide from happening is to dismantle the empire. First of all, what do you mean by empire? Well, you might call it the American Imperium or the American Empire. Uh, The United States has military bases dating back to the Cold War uh, in Europe, in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, all over the world. And we're running a deficit of 10% of our gross national product And quite frankly, we can't afford any longer, in my judgment, to continue to carry this enormous burden of defending 40 or 50 countries around the world. And so I think we're going to have to dismantle these bases. Uh We're going to have to come back from Asia, come back from uh, the Middle East and South Asia. And I think we're going to have to bring the troops home from Europe. You were writing and speaking out extensively about the Bush era. Uh, era um, crusade under the banner of ending tyranny in the world. Do you think that crusade is still on? (laughs) The idea that we're going to end tyranny in the world is utterly utopian. We never are. We've had tyrants from time immemorial. And what the United States should do, in my judgment, in its foreign policies, is build a defense establishment strong enough to protect our vital interests and our vital allies And when problems arise, whether it's in Zimbabwe or somewhere else, the people there have got to deal with their own problems. There's no doubt about it that throughout history, tyrants have arisen and seized power in one place or another, and as long as they don't threaten our vital interest or threaten and kill our people, the fact that they rule or misrule certain countries is none of our business. Osama bin Laden's successor said he supports the war against Assad in Syria. And al-Qaeda was reportedly behind the four suicide bombings, uh, which killed scores of Syrian officials and soldiers in Damascus and Aleppo. Doesn't it seem strange that the U.S. is on the same side with al-Qaeda in Syria? Well, it, 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 it does indeed. Listen, the, the Assad government has been... Uh, has been ruthless and brutal in suppressing the uprising and the insurgency against it. Not as brutal as his father was, Hafiz al-Assad, who slaughtered 20,000 people in Hama in 1982 when they rose up. And it would probably be a good thing if he departed and they had a more democratic government. But your point is well taken. The United States should ask itself not only what is the character of this regime, but the first question should be, do we have a vital interest in who rules Syria? My answer to that is no. Secondly, if the incumbent government is overthrown, who comes to power in Syria? You have the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to overthrow Assad. You have al-Qaeda, apparently, which is moving in, trying to overthrow Assad. So we've got to ask ourselves, is the devil we know preferable to the devil we don't know? But in the Syrian situation, I think the very fact that al-Qaeda has been involved apparently in these four suicide attacks should tell us that we ought to be wary about overthrowing or participating in a movement to overthrow Assad 
before we know what's going to replace him. As you said, it's very hard to tell what's going to happen uh, to Syria if more radical forces seize power. Do you think the U.S. foreign policy might be helping terrorists indirectly? I think the United States uh, American strategists would have to be fools not to see what al-Qaeda is doing, not to ask the question, if it's good for al-Qaeda, can it be good for us, and not to look at Assad and say, he may be a ruthless dictator in what he's doing, but what comes after him when he falls? I think al-Qaeda does its best work, or it works best when it finds a country that is fundamentally a failed state in Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan under the Taliban. And I think in those conditions, that's where al-Qaeda can plan and recruit far better than it can when you have a a regime which is a hard-line regime running the situation, whether it's... Okay. That is, that, that, that is perfect, Gannon. We, we kind of like his philosophies to, to a large degree. But... Um, yeah. You can go to that and listen to it for yourself. It's an excellent yeah, speech. Our, yeah. he, he makes a lot of sense in this particular time. I don't always agree with everything he has to say, but this I agree with. Yeah. I uh, think we have to get out of those countries. It's money not well spent. Oh, and money we don't have. It's deficit spending. And we've come right to the end of the show anyway. That's what he's been saying for, Forever. for, for a long time, but it's also what uh, Ron Paul has been saying uh-huh. for a long time. And uh, hopefully that'll I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight, and we hope you will join me tomorrow night when uh, we do it again. Good night, everybody.